everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac. Today in the house, a very, very dear friend, uh, a Montrealer, Tanvir Nasir. Tanvir is an internationally acclaimed keynote speaker, award-winning leadership writer, and he's the author of a fantastic book, Leadership Vertigo. Check that out. We'll talk more about it. He's also the founder and CEO of Tanvir Nasir Leadership, a leadership corporate training and consulting firm that works with executives and managers to help develop practical leadership and team building competencies to drive organizational growth and development. His work, his writings have been featured in all kinds of places, Forbes, Fast Company, Inc., The Globe and Mail, The Economist, Executive Education, Navigator, CBC Radio Daybreak, Global News, and the Ritz-Carlton Leadership Center. That's a cool one. He's the recipient of several awards and recognitions as one of the world's top thinkers in the leadership sphere, including being recognized by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 100 leadership and management experts out there, as well as by Inc. Magazine as one of today's 100 great leadership speakers. He's the host of the very popular and long-running Leadership Biz Cafe podcast, of which I've been a very thankful guest of Tanvir's in the past. He's also a graduate of McGill University's Department of Medicine, where he obtained his Master of Science degree in Pathology. I also graduate from McGill, but aren't as smart as Tanvir is. He lives in Montreal with his wife and three daughters. Tanvir, thank you for doing this today. So great to see you. Now, we're going to talk a little bit Leadership Biz Cafe on the other side, where you're in the hot seat, and I'm the one asking the question. So thanks for doing this. The first I want to get to is, Tanvir... Have you seen any evolution, if you will, uh, in terms of leadership in your thinking? Like, has leadership evolved from the days in which that, you know, you graduated from McGill to all the good work that you do in your writing, your speaking, your consulting, et cetera? Like, where, what's changed for the good or maybe not so good? Let's start there, my friend. Well, I think one of the things is there's a better sense of recognition for where we have gaps in the leadership space. Uh, things like we're starting to recognize we need to be doing a better job communicating as leaders. Um, I think we're also starting to recognize the importance of emotional intelligence, in particular empathy, in the context of understanding diversity better, that it's not just this metric where we have to have a head count of X number from this group and that group, but really like, what are we doing to ensure that this person is a full participant in our organization, as opposed to just being very task oriented, just doing what's asked of them and nothing more that we really are getting the benefits of that. I think there is an awareness of that. Now, mm. the challenge is how much are we actually doing something about it? And that's where I see the gap where it's like it's understood. And I think there's efforts to try to understand what to do. But then I think the busyness and the urgencies, those fires we got to put out, kind of detract from it and i'll be honest i think also it's hard and because mm -hmm. it's hard we procrastinate we kind of make excuses to not really address it so then let's peel back a few layers on that onion you just delivered to us on the on the cart of vegetables um empathy is this something that we can teach and if so what are we doing what should we be doing, I guess, Tanvir, differently? Because it's such an important trait, and I, I wholly agree. Um, but it kind of seems if we're getting busy or busier and you know our technology was supposed to aid us and it's not because it's creating more consternation and chasms in actual our time management, ironically, of course, empathy seems to be something that is desperately needed in this day and age, yet 
we don't have time for it. So what do we what do we do about that crisis? Well, I think part of the problem here when it comes to empathy and empathy and leadership is, first of all, we don't need to train ourselves or to learn it. We have to unlearn the behaviors that have made it so it's difficult for us to empathize. Because one of the things we're seeing now is, is that empathy used to be a thing where, you know, let's say a national a natural disaster happens somewhere and we just empathize. We have to help. We have to do something. Mm-hmm. Now we see more what I would call conditional empathy. If you meet these parameters then I will empathize with you. But if you don't, if you're part of what I define in whatever manner I want, an out group, then I don't want to empathize with you. Instead, I'm going to possibly enjoy that German idea of Schneidenfraud, where (laughs) I'm going to get pleasure from the mishaps or the struggles you're encountering. Um, And so I think this is something where we have to deprogram ourselves to think of empathy not as a conditional thing, where you have to be part of this group, however I define it, for me to empathize with you and just say, no, no, I empathize with you because you're a fellow human being on this little blue planet that we both occupy. And so I think that's the first thing we have to do, because I think that's one of the reasons we see such a rise in tribalism in so many fronts today is because we're putting conditions on how we empathize and try to relate to people who are different from us. And I think that's something that leaders really, again, one of the things we often talk about in leadership circles is you have to model the behavior you want to see in your organization. Mm. And so as leaders, we have to be very mindful that, you know what, I get that there's these things that are driving my attention. They're, they're, again, it's the easy things that I want to focus on. But you got to make that effort because if you start doing it, you're now defining one aspect of your culture and your organization. You're showing people. And then as if you're a senior leader, you're now setting the tone for the middle managers and your frontline managers that this is what I expect you to present. And that changes the dynamics of how we interact with one another within the workplace. Okay, let's uh, let's challenge this a little bit. So we both experienced the pandemic. I mean, arguably, it's still going on as we uh, record this uh, early January. Um, when the pandemic first hit and lockdowns were occurring, Tanvir, kind of you know March of 2020 through to whatever, perhaps the the spring or early summer, I felt at least um, a high degree of empathy that was happening from leaders and organizations to. Everyone, right? So the frontline team member, you know, the manager who had never worked from home before now is working from home. And so there was just this, I don't know, I felt like an oozing of empathy. And then maybe it's just me, but the empathy sort of just went away by perhaps the fall of 2020. And it just almost went in 2021 and through 2022, the back to normal. Well, this is how we lead. It's not really empathic. So what have you learned or observed, I suppose, right, as a result of the pandemic? And are there other things we should be doing um, from the learnings of the pandemic itself in our leadership? Well, you know what? I love that you're bringing this up because I think it also we're another symptom of what you're 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 bringing up here is this growing push for what's you know I love business people they always like to acronym things that RTO the return to office <laughs> right um, it, it's symptomatic because exactly what you're pointing out right with the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 there was it was almost this unifying thing right where if it would hit a country in Europe or if it hit a country in South America there was this 
oh my God, we have to do something. Is there a way we can send some PPE to them to help right. them out and so yeah. forth? Right. We weren't hoarding, right? But then I think what happened is we all just experienced fatigue, right? It's just it's it's asking a lot of me, and I'm just tired of having to do this. And I think that's why we're seeing such a push to return to office. Leaders, if they're looking at a future work and we're talking about a hybrid work environment where we're no longer going to do Monday to Friday, nine to five, such as because it doesn't seem like it makes sense. The arguments for it before were, well, productivity is going to take a hit if we don't do this. Well, the pandemic proved otherwise. Right. Okay, so what's the argument we make now instead? Oh, collaboration is key. Um, but the reality is, if you look at how these arguments are being presented, People are saying we want to encourage collaboration, but I remember speaking to one German leader last year. They did the return to office early spring, and it was a failure because they realized everyone had become conditioned to doing Zoom meetings, that everyone was spending the entire day on in front of their computers, earbuds on, doing Zoom calls with a colleague who was just a row across. <laughs> I'm not even going to get up. I'm just going to jump on Zoom and say, hey, let's talk. And they just by managing walking around, they could hear they were talking to one another like through the screen because it was just easier because then they hang up and then they pick up another Zoom call, right? So they're not collaborating in person. They're still doing that behaviors, but it's because the infrastructure they created does not facilitate collaboration. And more importantly, I think when you look at the way return to office is being pushed, there's not in any of that communication, any indications of transparency or trust. Right. Uh, it's not showing, oh, well, I need my employees to be in the office to collaborate. No, it's really becoming clear. It's you need them in the office because how do I know they're getting the jobs done? I mean, you probably read the stats of how many people are noticing that they and I've actually talked to a colleague of mine who actually experiences that where they actually had to put their mouse they had to put a pen under it so that it would not the computer would not go to sleep because they were being tracked. Oh, I have to be at my desk from nine to five. But if I finish my work at two, why do I have to waste three hours in front of my thing? So they figured out this hack of putting a pen under their mouse so the computer would not go to sleep because it thinks the mouse is being moved and it fools this uh, surveillance software. Nice. Look, if you're being surveilled, it's because they don't trust you. And if you're working in an environment that where there's no trust, how can you collaborate? How could I feel safe to say, Dan, I, I, I see what you're saying about this new initiative, but here's my concerns with it, right? I'm not going to feel comfortable bringing up my thing because I don't feel trust that if I say something, it's not going to come back and, and, and have an adverse impact on my career and how I grow in this company. So I think the two of them reflect the fact that there's been this fatigue where we're like, oh, we're just tired. So we just want to go back to the office. I want to go back to the way things were because when it was back then, I didn't have to think, oh, I haven't spoken to so-and-so, so I better check in on them, right? Or so-and-so uh -huh. was not as animated in this meeting, right? Why were they so quiet? Maybe something's going on. I need to check in, see how they're doing. There's more intentionality. There's more effort that needs to be taken, and it's easier if people are just around, you just see them in your office and, okay, everyone's working. But we know before the pandemic started, and it was ironic, before they said COVID-19 was a pandemic, who actually said workplace stress and burnout was the pandemic mm. of the 21st century? So if we pick, bring people back to the office, what are we doing to address those issues? We're not. And I think it's because we're seeing leadership fatigue. 
Well, and you've touched on something so subtly, but uh, viscerally, and that is we really do have to evolve our leadership game because mm-hmm. before the pandemic, as you allude to, it's 100% on site, which came with it perhaps some uh, altruism of trust because you'd see everyone you're like, oh, you're working or, or I can pat you on the back for a good job, uh, well done, et cetera. And then, as you said, that um, kind of invoked empathy had to occur when we went on lockdown, 100% from home, if you will, for the obviously the uh, professional workers that weren't frontline and healthcare, et cetera. So you're like, oh, okay, well, we've never done this before. So I guess I can be a different type of leader in this emergency case. But we haven't actually then, Tanvir, is it fair to say, evolved our leadership uh, development opportunities or abilities in this sort of RTO kind of mandate. And so what is it that we need to be doing then? I guess what employees are looking for is this hybrid model. It's quite obvious where sometimes they're in the office and sometimes they're at home, if not at home all the time. But what is it trust? Is it empathy? Is it more? Is it that intentionality that you allude to in terms of what we need to do in terms of evolving the leadership space itself? Yeah. And I think, well, there's two things. First of all, I want to touch on that. We have to give, we have to give space for leaders to recognize that a lot of us, you know, we enter into leadership spaces and we have a model or an example of someone we worked under who we use as a reference point. Yeah, And so a lot of those examples were of people we went to office nine to five, Monday to Friday. And now suddenly we're being told, no, no, you're now going to have to lead somebody who's not in the office with you. And maybe he's not in the office the same day. So how do I do that? How do I connect with them? How do I, we don't have the prior experience or even the reference points to help us know how do I do this right? And so I do think we have to recognize there's growing pains here. And I don't think, uh, we're giving leaders that space to recognize, like, look, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, a few are. I remember speaking to an oil and gas executive who said to me that they made it clear to their middle managers and the frontline managers, look, folks, we're going to break things. We're trying to figure out our what, what kind of hybrid model makes sense for our organization. And in the co- process of doing that, we're going to break stuff. And that's okay, because when we break stuff, we're going to figure out why it broke and what do we need to do differently. So going forward, we'll come up with a better approach. So don't worry if something goes wrong. Let us know and we'll figure it out. So it was refreshing to see. Here's a leader who realizes, look, we're in uncharted territory. We have to figure out what makes sense for our organization and not just think we can cut paste what some other organization does. I mean, we know you can't do that with organizational values. You can't take the values of company A and apply it to company B just because company A is so successful. You have to figure out what makes sense for your organization. So I think that's one thing that we need to do. I think the other thing that's uh, at issue and what's probably the answer to the question you asked, Dan, is something I bring up with some of my keynotes, where I ask the question of the leaders, what is the goal you're after with your employees? Are you looking to get the most from your employees or are you aiming to get the best? And you have to be careful not to think that they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you can get I mean, there's all this discussion before about quiet quitting. Now there's uh, what is it called? Rage applying. Right? Yeah. There's all these things. And nobody's recognizing that what's there's two things that are at the heart of this. First of all, is what we said. There's a lack of trust. I don't feel trusted by my leaders. I don't feel my organization trusts me. And I think part of that is because they just want I've proven I could work from home and be really productive. And that's not enough, mm. right? And it's because we're if you say you want the most, well, 
what is that? What's the ceiling? What is the yardstick? Which is, is that the most? Because no, you could do more because there's always more, right? But the best, it's easy for us to qualify that. If you can get this for us, if you can achieve a 20% increase, that's giving us your best. Well, if I hit my 20% and I do it in three days, I've delivered, right? I'm delivering not on time. I'm delivering on giving you my best. That's what you've hired me here to do. And so I think that's one thing that we have to recognize when we talk about these these issues of whether we're worried. Because I have a lot of leaders come to me and say, look, we're really concerned about quiet quitting. And I'm sure now with this whole discussing of rage applying, that's going to become another thing. But these are just symptoms of an underlying issue that we need to recognize is here. And the other thing I would say is tied to it. And this actually falls on the on the shoulders of employees is we're becoming more adverse to conflict. And I think this goes back to the issue of empathy, actually, because I don't want to, like, if you have an issue with your, your boss and stuff, you should be able to bring it up to them and give them the chance to address it. But it's like, no, I don't want to. I'm just going to apply somewhere else and get a better job because I've had it here. And we become conflict adverse because, again, We've created these little groups. I'm going to mm -hmm. empathize conditionally with this person. I'm not going to condition empathize with my boss because, you know, all bosses are terrible. They don't really care and so forth. And I'm sure your experience is like mine. The leaders that we meet with, they do want to do right by their employees. The challenge right. is how do I do it? Because sometimes I feel like I'm doing it, but then the feedback I get, they're not seeing it. It's not giving them what they want. And I don't understand what it is that I need to do. So, I think that this is where we have to recognize on the one hand, there's the issue of trust, but then the other hand is also this issue that we can't be conflict adverse because we don't want to empathize. We don't want to create that space where I want to hear and understand your perspective so that that way we could figure out what would be the best solution to find common ground. You touched on Tanvir uh, probably about 10 minutes ago in your um, kind of the onion layers that I alluded to of, of your delivery. And that is, there's a pent up amount of stress and burnout that was coming into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The pandemic evolved into what it is. And here we are three years later, and there seems to be exacerbated levels of stress and burnout with employees, team members, not just because of the pandemic, but because arguably, and if you look as, as I know you do, because you're a research wonk at Forrester and Gallup and anyone's data that they've done research on, uh, there's kind of like a, a crisis in the organization from that mental health, well-being, uh, am I cared for? Is there empathy? Like there's just a number of arbiters that are causing uh, our, our, our unwellness in the organization. So with the data being irrefutable and in our face, why, <laughs> why are our leaders in a general cohort here not doing something about it? Because they're actually inflicting harm physically, mentally, et cetera, mm -hmm. on the employee. And society is not actually benefiting from this situation. You know what? It, it's something that I think uh, the problem is, is that we don't measure it, right? We don't have a metric associated with our leadership performance that says mental well-being. How well are you taking care of your ah, employees? Brilliant. Do you know what I mean? It it's really comes down to, I always tell a lot of leaders, like, I was like, look, you know, you need to have time to reflect. Like, look, I got so much work to do and so forth. They said, look, if you were to meet with one of your top clients 
and something comes up like, oh, your employee says there's a bit of a problem. Are you going to reschedule that meeting or are you going to say, look, look, how urgent is this? Can this wait till after my meeting? Well, if it could wait, I'm going to keep my meeting. I said, well, you have to think of yourself at these moments as being your most important client, because if you don't take care of yourself, it's hard for you then to take care of those you lead. Well, it's the same thing with this. If we don't make the effort to recognize that this is fundamental to getting the best out of our employees, heck, even mm -hmm. if you want to get the most, if you want to say, you know, Tara, it's fine. I don't really care about getting the best for whatever reason. You just want to get the most. Well, you're not going to get the most out of people if they are suffering, okay? They're just not going to deliver their most because they are suffering. So you need to address that. And I think it comes down to fundamentally the same. The One of the things I brought up in one of my podcast episodes, which is that we have to recognize that leadership is hard and it's meant to be hard right? It's that's, there's a reason why not all of us should be leaders and why we don't have everyone aspiring to be a leader because it's something that requires a special skill set and a special drive. One, I remember telling one person that said, when you get a promotion from being an employee to being a manager, it's not going up a rung on the ladder. You're changing ladders. You're going to a completely different ladder. Yeah. It's the way you have to think about it because now your focus is not on your career trajectory. Your focus is on the career trajectory of your employees. How do I help them succeed and thrive? Because that's the measure of meter. And we intuitively understand that. So if your employees are suffering, is that not the inverse of helping your employees to succeed and thrive? <laughs> but again, it's hard, right? Because then people say, yeah, but Tanver, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. And it's like, you don't have to be that. That's not your job. Because if it gets to the point where they need that kind of professional help, then you've ignored key signs that someone is not doing well and you let it get to a point where now they need something that you cannot provide. There are things you can do before. And again, it ties back to so many things that we've been discussing here, Dan, where like, look, if I'm in a trusting environment where I feel heard and understood, it's easy for me to tell my my boss, like, look, I feel like getting a lot on my plate. There's, a, I have a lot of projects. Could you prioritize for me of these three projects, which is the one that I should focus on the most because this is what's going to help us achieve our, achieve our year-end goals. Mm -hmm. And then I'll back burn to the other two for when this one gets done because I can't focus on those. I need to know I can have that kind of a conversation with my leader. And my leader needs to demonstrate to me that I can have that conversation. Again, my point about when I see this new thing of rage applying, I actually was reading some articles and it was amazing how people didn't even bother to have a conversation to say to their, their boss, I'm not happy because I was hoping to get this promotion. I didn't get it. What did I not do that I couldn't get it? And going forward, what are the things I should be doing to ensure I do get it the next go round? right? That's the kind of conversation we should be having. Instead, oh, forget it. The guy's a jerk. She's a jerk. I'm just going to apply somewhere else. Oh, look, I got I got a 20% bump in salary. I'm happy. Well, you're happy for three months, but you still didn't get your promotion, right? Yeah. So I think this is the kind of thing where, again, when I was talking earlier, when you asked me about the evolution, I think there's that awareness that we have to improve our communication. And this is one of the areas. Are we communicating to our employees that we are creating an environment that allows them to share 
their concerns, their issues early on, and that we're going to help them figure a solution so that we don't have to get to the point where, okay, I need to provide them with some professional help to help them get better. I could chat with you all day. Uh, I've got one final segment I'd like to ask you, and um, it could be uh, potentially confrontational, not between you and I, but between the industry. And so, uh, Tanvir, I'm I'm curious, is there any such thing, is it valid uh, these days to, to wonder if there is such a thing called employee engagement? And, and what I mean by that is, from varying uh, consultative firms that have been measuring employee engagement for you know twenty plus years, it doesn't seem that quote the score of employee engagement has materially changed in twenty plus years. <laughs> so from sort of one leadership guy to another, should, are we measuring the wrong thing? Back to your point about potentially measuring the uh, the return on leadership for someone who should be actually. Um, advocating for one's health or wellness, et cetera. Is employee engagement a thing more importantly? And, and what is there something better we should be doing? Well, I think I'm going to pivot the question a little bit and say that I think the fact that we're seeing now this push to say we want to get back to 2019 is emblematic of the problem that we've seen in leadership for the last 20 years, which is that, you know what? It seems like things are working. Is it working at its best? No. Could it be better? Sure. Does that mean that I have changed the way I lead and I'm going to have to do some more heavy lifting? Absolutely. So do I want to do that? Nah. <laughs> because we've had 20 years of evidence that shows that leaders can get away with it, right? right. Because we're so focused on those quarterly targets, right? I mean, yeah. we're anticipating a recession is coming, so let's lay people off before it has even arrived, just so we can know that if it should happen, which it seems like it's going to happen, uh, we're ready for it. But look, Dan, we all know what happens at the end of a recession and everyone's claiming, oh, it'll be a short one because everyone's taking measures to address it. And the minute a recession's over, what happens? Organizations are driven for massive growth. They want to do a massive hiring spree. They want to get people on board. But where is that outlook now? If you're letting go of people in a market where there's a talent shortage, where are you going to find those people to help you grow at the end of that recession? This shows a very short-term outlook where we're just trying to figure out, we're nickel and diming today without a, an understanding of how that's going to impact the future. And we've gotten away with it for the last 20 odd years. And so I think that's the problem is that we keep looking backwards and saying, well, it's worked in the past, but we're seeing it, it's catching up to us, right? We're seeing now the market is turning where employees can now say, you know what? I don't have to put up with this. I can look for work elsewhere, or I could create my own company. And that's what we're seeing a lot of people are doing is they're going on to, on, onto their own and providing services to the companies they used to work for. So I <laughs> the think, boomerang, right? The boomerang employee yeah. leave and come back, but on contract. Exactly. And I think it's not a question of whether we are measuring the wrong things as it is that again, we are finding excuses to not address it. And I do think part of the problem comes from our leadership development pipelines where we are not training. Okay, I didn't get this right. 
but I'm hoping you can do better. And I think that aspirationally should be the goal for every leader that as you're working. And I mean, I think a great example, uh, not to date this is the, what happened with Disney where clearly there was not that intentionality mm. done to say, I need to make sure that my successor will fly past me because that's what a leader should do. A real leader makes it so that the people that work for them will become leaders in their own right who will be even better than they were as a leader. And so I think it comes down to if we don't retool our leadership development pipeline where we're saying, look, your employees really matter the most. That's what matters to organization. It's not lip service. So you have to figure out how do you get them to care? How do you get them to feel a sense of purpose in what they do? So they bring their very best. And then that way our organization thrives because it's no longer about engaging them because we've engaged them in what matters to them. It's now empowering them to deliver that every day when they come to work, whether that's virtually or in person. So I think that's where we have to start. I think some leaders I'm hoping listening to us now are aspiring to say, well, I don't want to wait for the next generation of leaders. I want to be that leader today so that those employees working under me, that man, that woman working under me, who I see potential in, will be inspired by my example and take it one step further. I do think there is hope, but I think we're just all suffering from the same thing of there's the hard way and there's the easy way. And you know what? Everyone's taking the easy way. So, And I'm not getting dinged, right? As a leader i'm still getting my yearly bonuses so why change why make the effort to do something hard and fall flat on my face where if i'm rewarded for doing the easy thing brilliant stuff uh this has been a thrill of mine uh where i guess leadership now show meets the leadership is cafe maybe we'll have a mashup and call it the danvir show one day um <laughs> where can tavir where can people find out more about you and your wonderful stuff uh, best places to come to my website, tavinasir.com. Uh, you can learn more about my speaking work. You can check out my blog and you'll have access and links to check out my podcast, Leadership Biz Cafe, which Dan was so gracious to be a guest on. Uh, you can find us on all the streaming platforms out there. Uh, we are gratefully on everything. So you could find us on those on those things. And as Dan pointed out, I think we're now entering year 13. So one of the OGs of podcasting, not one of those people who started during the, the pandemic and stuff, which, you know, I always tell people I'm grateful that they did because it just broadened the audience of people interested in podcasting. Well, anyone uh, who has 13 years of experience doing your wonderful show and having uh, uh, an alumni so good as Tom Peters on your show three times is certainly <laughs> doing something right. Uh, Tamvir, you're a friend first, but uh, thanks for what you're doing to contributing to the development of leaders and organizations. You've been uh, a true North Star for over a decade, and uh, please continue doing what you're doing. We're all grateful for you. Oh, right back at you, Dan. I mean, uh, I was looking forward to this. I could talk shop about leadership with you all day. It's just such a joy. All right, my friend. Well, folks, another episode of Leadership Now. Uh, Tamir Nusir in the house today. Do check out all of this stuff. Uh, and honestly, um, thanks again, my man. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. You too.